expats on air so it's been a while we've been away for a while but we're back with a new guest kind of an international man of mystery and i'm only saying that because i'm gonna need him to tell us what he's all about so joining us today is nestor santana he works at a startup called scantrust and i think you could maybe introduce yourself a bit more maybe talk about scantrust or talk about something completely different you know it's up to you yeah, thanks, Nathan. It's been literally years since I've uh, spoken with you and seen your face. Um, but it's uh, I, when I saw you on LinkedIn, I thought uh, I like what he's doing. I listened to one of the podcasts, and uh, I wanted to connect. I think hopefully also on a personal note, when I'm back in the U.S. Uh, for a visit, because uh, I'm not moving back anytime soon. I think um, I would love to drop in on you in Texas. And also, uh, on that note, where in Texas do you live? Just so I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the reason I asked that, not just just to know where you are, is also because if I'm in Texas, I'm going to be dropping in on Scott Silverman, right? Who is part of my career origin story. And yeah, he is part of the career origin story for a lot of people. Uh, probably more people. Uh, then some of them probably wouldn't even want to admit it. They, probably Scott me, does, me Scott too. Scott doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would definitely attribute Scott as well for me as well. Like he definitely helped me get my foot in the door in a lot of places. And we're even doing some work together now uh, in Austin. You know, we both live here. We're doing some, some projects, nothing big, but uh, it's, you know, it's ongoing. Yeah. yeah. So he, um, he's a very good friend an old friend and he is the reason that I am at all associated uh, career-wise and otherwise with marketing. Um, I've never liked the idea of being like an advertising career person, even though that's what I've become. And, uh, uh, and, and it's, it's irrational, but uh, I've always enjoyed working in marketing and advertising with Scott Silverman. Um, when I started out, I was in Beijing and I was just doing odd like web development stuff. Um, I was working for a Dutch company at one point called Pond Skater. And uh, they had a, a remote control bait boat. And the bait boat, you would fill it with chum. You'd send, it's, it's actually terrible. It's really terrible. It's just baiting the fish by dropping chum remotely and then casting your line in there. It's just, if you can't, put the fish in the barrel, then you bring the barrel to the fish kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I, I was uh, working for companies like that here and there, mostly foreign companies uh, in Beijing. And then Scott, I, I believe I met through Charlie, his son, uh, Charlie Silverman, who I love to death. And, uh, and uh, at one point I was Scott and Gail's 
uh, neighbor. And uh, so right on uh, near Chunxiolu and Xinfutun Zhonglu, um, which if, if any listeners have <laughs> lived in Beijing, you'll know uh, that's like right by uh, um, Gongti, um, pretty central expat area. Um, so so that that evolved into Scott was like, well, can you do this stuff? He you know with the photoshops and whatnot. And I was like, in my head, no. But I was to him, yeah, no problem. So I just uh, learned how to be a, a very basic graphic designer. And then in the meantime, I was finding people to fill in that role. And then that spiraled out of control until now I'm yeah, working at ScanTrust, uh, or contracting into ScanTrust as uh, the director of marketing. That's um, awesome. There's a lot of in between, certainly the international aspect that you mentioned earlier uh, at one point when we were escaping China, uh, and I say we because I have a family now, um, and before we had the family, we're thinking about that. We escaped to Tokyo, where I then worked for Lo Prefero um, for a time, and uh, they have a different name now. But um, uh, And then from there, we made our jump to Finland, and from Finland to Estonia, where I've been for... Uh, almost the better part of a decade now so wow. let me see it'll be in august it'll be six years actually yeah is your wife from there from estonia yeah so she she was uh born here and but not quite raised here so she was she was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore the estonian soviet socialist republic right. which then became estonia uh, post 1991 when they gained independence and um because of the career trajectory trajectory of her father um particularly um but for other reasons too uh, her, her mom's preferences they decided to move to russia and um, um when she was a teenager then she my wife moved to england um, and then never came back to Estonia or, or to Russia, uh, other than for familial visits. Um, but, uh, so, so in a way she's, she's a foreigner here too. Um, uh, the, there's a term here for, that I think she fits into better. It, it's, uh, which is like foreign Estonians. And she's kind of that way, although she's, she's taken, uh, ownership of that part of her identity uh, as we've as we've been here longer she's and, a, and we've um, a third my culture kids, you know, kid yeah totally the, the, and my kids are you know I, I think the best way to explain them is or one a good way to to doesn't really cover all the bases but they're they're like they're baltic latinos uh because i'm i was obviously hispanic oh and, uh, yeah yeah and, and my santana yeah, sure. That we sounds have, pretty uh, Hispanic. We, <laughs> yeah, the pretty pretty easy to trace a line back to Spain, uh, and then because of uh, where our family was for centuries, that uh, we have indigenous roots as well. So very uh, uh, mixed up in Spain, they would say multiculti, um, which you can uh, parse to see what that means. But um, okay. yeah, so. There's there's a lot more uh, that happened in between, but uh, yeah, now I'm in Estonia, um, working uh, uh, for ScanTrust, which is a Swiss company. I've never even been to Switzerland. Been to a lot of places, but not there. 
And um, um, ScanTrust is this connected packaging and goods company. We primarily use QR codes as an Internet of Things gateway. So if you put a QR code onto any physical product or good, now there's a reference point for it to be connected to a database. And so information can be updated on it, retrieved from it, et cetera. And there are several products that we get from that. But I think that's as much as we need to say about ScanTrust. Well, I mean, I actually do have a question about that. Like, were you kind of involved in early stage QR tech, at least from the marketing perspective? Um, Yeah, that's that's kind of uh, a loaded question, actually, because early stage QR tech um, does have to be separated from marketing tech um, because that came way later. Denso Wave is a Japanese company that created the QR code and the way that the information can be coded into it. And there's not a, a whole lot of information relative to memory sizes and storage capacities that we know now in this day and age, but there's plenty for putting in, say, a URL. Um, uh, or you can even string together QR code then, but that's, I'm getting carried away with that. So it was created actually for the automotive industry by Denso Wave in Japan to make it so that on the assembly line, you have some kind of way to automate organization and tagging of elements that are then eventually made into trucks, cars, um, and you know, this kind of transportation or construction machineries. Somebody, and I, I'm a little bit embarrassed, admit, I don't know who first decided to take that out of the assembly line and out of automotive to then start using it as a consumer engagement element. Um, Fairly certain to happen in Japan, though, as well. And um, as you know, this is where then marketing um, uh, or, or MarTech started to pick up on it. Um, in, in China, Japan, Korea, I mean, these East Asian countries, that's where you started first to see the pervasiveness of the use of QR codes as something that is used for payment systems. Eventually, that came about and became uh, completely endemic uh, over there um, and uh, for advertising for um, uh, when you, you start to go forward and in, into um, uh, let's say 2021. So like maybe you could probably pay, place this better. Like when did WeChat start using QR codes? Um, that yeah, I don't remember the year exactly, but I mean, all the payment stuff started taking off in like 2014, I would say, you know, which, you know, the QR yeah. codes are a big part of that. Uh, I, I remember that, that that change actually was so stark and there was such a contrast that when, so I, I left Beijing um, in, yeah, like, I want to say 2016. Uh, I might have said a weird year before, but 2015 or 2016, no, 2014. Yeah, 2014 makes more sense. Yeah, because I've been here for six years. So 2013, 2014, I left. And then when I went back for a visit, um, uh, in addition to getting an upper respiratory infection, because my lungs were virgin again. Yeah, um, as you do, do that. as you do when you're thing, yeah. you know. The, oh, the, the shame of it was uh, I, I was with my firstborn son and, uh, and my wife and, and all of us got respiratory infections. It's terrible. Um, but when I went back, I realized that I can't pay for things in cash. And I didn't have this app anymore. I, I didn't even want the app because I'm, 
uh, somewhat sensitive to um, the uh, privacy concerns that come along with using something like WeChat. But Nestor, if you're not doing anything wrong, what are you really worried about? Are you really worried about the Chinese government getting into your phone? What are you doing so wrong? Oh, what's, what's the matter I, here? I'll, I like to shut that conversation down by saying, what if I am doing something wrong? It's none of your business. Now, that's a great uh, answer. That is a gr that's the answer I'm going to start using. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's not incriminating. It's just a possibility, um, and a, a good answer. So, yeah, I, uh, I I tried to buy something at the little you know Xiao Mai Bu, which for the uninitiated is just a, like a bodega, a little shop, and they were like, "What are you doing with those little paper things? We don't know. Use your phone." And I was like, "Well, I don't know how to do that." Um, I think we eventually had to like broke and then uh, had to install the thing because otherwise, and then I got a, a local friend um, uh, in Beijing to, to put money on my account because you would need a bank account to then fund it. Um, so yeah, yeah, around that period, um, so after we'd left, after we'd been uh, in Tokyo for a while, for, for months, then we came back to visit and that happened super fast. So this place, um, it's like a little shop, but they wouldn't take cash. They were one of those like trying to be, oh, WeChat only. Look how innovative we are. Yeah. Um, and I found the same thing like um, in restaurants, too, that yeah. they reluctantly took cash. And I, you know, that was, you know, that was already years ago. So I imagine now cash is all but uh, not used. And, and, and I know that. Uh, they're they're experimenting not with a super large uh, test group, but the Chinese government is using the digital UN and has been for a while to to see how it goes because they want to roll that out um, as far as I can tell as as soon as possible. They want to have the digital UN functioning ASAP. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's been years in the making, and um, I'm not going to say with total confidence that this all started with the QR code, but it is the facilitating tag at the gateway for, for those kinds of interactions. And, and um, so we're, we're, what you're saying is you are the Cyberdyne systems of this kind of uh, post-apocalyptic dystopian uh, place where we can't use cash anymore. And they're like, Oh, sorry, you got to download the Luckin app to buy my coffee and you got to pay online. Is, is that is that um, did you help are you like the black guy in terminator 2 who gets shot up by sarah connor and you're there like making a qr code but she came back in time and she's like fuck this shit i want to pay cash i just want to go back to things normal and she was trying to murder you did that happen um i, I was gonna say i feel a bit more like sarah connor um uh, i don't have okay. any gender dysmorphia or anything like that but um uh there there is something to be said with relating dystopia and digital currencies because they're the rabbit hole runs real deep on that one and, and um you know one of the things about digital the digital un is that the uh, one of the plays with it is that it has a far better potential for displacing the us dollar as a global currency than their red back um, which is the UN. That's a, 
it's uh it's just not going to happen with the un and if you have a digital currency then you have a much uh more likely scenario where where you would have uh politically once that's been greased you have countries that are uh, permissive to a degree um, or or accepting of china's rise and and uh, realize that, that that economically they're very closely intertwined i mean not realize but just are, are more permissive of that you have uh, the united states is is in a in a balancing act um in, in this regard although we're balancing further towards uh being um in opposition to that rise um and and we can get into the politics of that uh, in a minute, but uh, Germany also is a is a, com uh, is a country that has been criticized a lot in Europe for not being uh, vociferous enough about the complaining and 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 making changes that would address uh, some of the more controversial topics around doing business uh, with, with Chinese companies. So, if you have a situation where uh, reserves are all in the U.S. dollar. And uh, and you have uh, a digital currency that's a new one that makes transition uh, transactions in, in that uh, currency much easier, cheaper as well, especially when you get into transactions that are into tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, then you start to have more of a possibility for for changing that uh, the status quo with currencies. So, yeah, uh, then you get into privacy issues. Um, so there's there's a carrot, an economic carrot, and then uh, the result of that uh, that that kind of a change could very well be that, well, the anonymity of cash is absolutely gone. Or what happens if all of your accounts are not just a a, a Chinese um, currency that's digital, but an, let's say an American one, if all of your currency is in that, uh, if all your money is in that currency then let's say you owe the government uh, for a parking ticket instead of having the freedom and choice to be able to pay whenever you want it could just be an automatic deduction any bit of your income that's official uh, and you know if there's no cash and there is no other way but official means uh, although you know hackers figure things out and criminals find ways but um, but but ostensibly then there would be no other way and so if there's any reason uh, uh, whatsoever that a government would use to to limit your spending, to to tax you for a penalty, to tax you, tax you, uh, all of those things would be instantaneous. Um, and then that could be in in a bad faith actor in a government uh, corpus could lead to dystopic uh, uh, problems. Yeah, I'd say even now in the U.S because of COVID, there's a lot of places that don't take cash and namely the airport. Like I was just flying last week out to DC and yeah, there's like no places that take cash in the airports. So that's, it's kind of a development here. You know, it's not a big QR code place, but it's a big, uh, you know, little, uh, RFID chip and Apple pay kind of place, you know? So it's, it's not much different from China. If you really break it down, it's still digital payments at the end of the day. Right. Are you are you gonna miss the the cash or are there does it concern you? I like cash. I like using cash. I was one of those foreigners. You know, I left China in 2020, like right before COVID hit, 
Chinese New Year 2020. And I was always carrying cash with me. It was something I kind of cared about. I mean, I use WeChat Pay and Alipay all the time. I wasn't like some guy hiding in the woods, you know, sending bombs to scientists or anything like that. I was still kind of doing everything. Gotcha. But I liked having cash. And I, I don't want to lose being able to use cash. I like cash. And the same in the U.S. I like using cash. I keep... Well, I don't want to say this on the air, but let's just say I like to hold on to a lot of cash, too. Don't mug me, please. Um, and why would anyone mug you when it's obviously in your mattress? So. Well, we're in Texas and, you know, it's a kind of a gun friendly place. So you might, you know, you might get shot if you try to rob somebody, too. There's always, you know, there's implications. That, that was not subtle at all. I don't carry uh, a gun, I think but I might start. Uh, and there's no other way. What, what's that? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the cash is definitely endangered. It is yeah. absolutely going that way. If the if Federal Reserve banks and, uh, and central governments are experimenting with this very publicly, the whole goal of that is not to do research to find out how is it that people use. They already know that. We already know that. The whole point is, Let's work the kinks out because we're going to we're getting out of the beta stage on this. So that's coming, and cash will not be around uh, for long. Um, yeah, cue the evangelicals freaking out. Um, it's the mark of the beast. The, mark of the yeah, beast. Well, yeah. It's either uh, like a, a QR code, RFID chip, uh, an implant. You know. So it's it's all can be construed as a mark of the beast, I think, pretty easily if you're required to do it. Yeah, and and you know you can you can deconstruct that in a way that um, it's always going to lead to that. Like if you have a central authority, anything that they can do to uh, assist in governing, in, even in the best with the best intentions, is something that serializes people and citizenry. So immediately you're, you're opened up to uh, the convenience of, like I said before, bad faith actors within a government entity to then give them convenience in acting in bad faith. And, and that's something that's been around ever since we've had government. And, and we know that because you can read it, you know, in the book of revelations. Uh, this is, this is, uh, but my point in, in saying that is that it's not that it's not like a prediction. It's just, the way that 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 we are, that, that Homo sapiens interact with each other. Like if you have leaders, and then you have like the, the citizenry, there's going to be there are going to be tools that get introduced for that. Um, and, and and since time immemorial, there's always been this battle between the overreach, um, the and and, uh, and and the maintenance or, or, or having to fight for. Um, uh, for civil rights and independence and to protect uh, the everyman from the overreach. Do you, do you so think that's you what the Bible... That, yeah. Sorry, uh, cut you off. The, the slight delay in the stream, but do you think that's what the Bible's talking about with the Mark of the Beast? It's just almost like a, this is what happens. It's not like some precise revelation about some year in the future. It's more like a general kind of guideline for humanity or something. No, I don't. I think the uh, Bible is cookie dicks. Um, I think it's complete uh, horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, maybe, maybe think uh, about it. Maybe that's, I'm not like some big Bible guy either, Like, but maybe, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Oh, and what I'm saying is there is something to that, is, and that uh, it's logical. Um, and there are aspects of the Bible, the Christian Bible, uh, of the Quran, of, of uh, you, know, you know, choose your flavor. All of them have elements that make a lot of sense, like do unto others. That's a principle that's shared among all major religions. Um, I think probably nihilism also has an element of that. Like it, it's just like these things make sense. But when you start to get into, uh, you know, there's a old white guy with a beard in the sky, like, okay, you kind of uh, choose your, uh, you choose where, what path you want to run down. Um, yeah. But and if you uh, want to get I, I super, super topical for, you know, May 14th, 2021, if God said that this land is yours and like it's like really destined to be yours because he said so, you might like want to fight some people over it, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Right. Hey, um, to name another date, the uh, uh, January 6th. Who's you your God? Fight. You got to fight for the Constitution, baby. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's a really good point. No, you make, you make a great point. And that is that if, if there's something that you, you want to happen or, or, or a convenient explanation for something. And ideally, like, I like my explanations to be convenient. I don't, do you like your, I like things to be simple. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's not always simple though. It's nice if it's simple. Yeah, it's nice. And that's the point. And so if God tells you that, um, you know, your neighbor's house is actually belongs to you. Then like, I'm not going to argue with that. God said it. He's the highest authority. Get the fuck out of your house. It's mine. You know, <laughs> this is, and I, you know, I don't want to yeah. get into Gaza Strip stuff, but yeah, um, I mean, well, well, who, who, who brought up Israel? <laughs> I guess I did. <laughs> okay. No, no, I, Jesus. I did, but, but still, <laughs> Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, this is—I I feel like we've gone on this great tangent. You know, we started with Scott Silverman and and came down to Chinese digital currency and like people thinking God gives them some sort of authority over other people and all that. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump back to Scott Silverman because we brought him up, and I feel like yeah. people listening—they're going to be like, "What? Are the, what the hell are they talking about? What? What was the beginning of this podcast? What was that all about?" And there's this guy who lives in Austin, Texas. And um, I know you th through him. And it's funny how you, you're talking about your start of your career and how you kind of didn't know what you're doing, but you sort of learned on the way and you kind of became a trusted uh, partner of Scott of sorts. And, you know, I always looked at you and I thought you were this international man of mystery digital guy because that's the way like, I don't know, I was staying at Scott's house in Beijing. I was in college studying in Beijing. I stayed at his house. You were always around doing stuff. And you always seemed like this super like cyberpunk guy making it happen in Beijing. And it was there was a lot of mystique to you from my perspective at the time as like as a kind of like a naive college kid, I feel like. That's that was my impression of you back way back when, fifteen years ago or so, when, when we were back there in Beijing. Yeah, um, I just, I'll take the opportunity to say that I love that man. 
yeah, he is fantastic. And I, I, it pains me that I can't see him every, every day, actually, the way that I used to back in that time. He's a joy. Uh, n- never mind the professional aspect and how impressed uh, I was at that time. Like, so you were younger than me then, but I mean, I was in my 20s at the time. And what I found quickly uh, was that if you put Scott into a room with people, he inspires uh, entertainment, but confidence and in almost anything. Um, it's like, oh, well, Scott's sorting it out. Him and his team, they're doing it. And no matter how competent I was in any technical aspect or realm, uh, no matter how well I could sort something out, I found myself going into the same sort of upsell pitch environments that he excelled at and did effortlessly, at least from my perspective. And people were like, why are we listening to you? Who the fuck are you? Who is this guy? You know, and then Scott comes in and all eyes were on him. Notes were being taken. And I was like, that is a lesson uh, that I didn't expect to learn when I came into this with Scott. Um, so he, he inspires people um, and in a way that is very important for business. Um, he is like the ultimate account director guy. And um, <clears throat> so um, that, that, that definitely was something that I've, I've continued to learn from Scott. Um, and, and every every minute that I've had with them, uh, especially in a professional environment. Um, but uh, I think probably part of why the, the impression or the view of me might have been of like being uh, a bit uh, mysterious or secretive was probably because I, I, half the time I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to be stoic. <laughs> Not complain about it. That's and just, uh, pretty hilarious. Keep walking. I feel like I've had those moments in like my career where I, you know, had the imposter syndrome and I was inexperienced and I didn't always know what I was doing. But, you know, you kind of learn as you go, like it's trial by fire, especially if you're really put on the spot and you have ownership of something and you didn't really do the the best job and you kind of feel that uh, consequence of that, then you definitely don't want that to happen again. And you you basically sharpen up after that. You know, you learn naturally. Keeping your cool is uh, when you're, regardless of your industry, um, it's an invaluable tool. Um, There were many times um, where I did not keep my cool. And even with clients, there was um, an unnamed client. Scott will know when he's listening to this exactly who I'm talking about. But one of the largest, uh, one of the the top five, just to keep a bit of mystery into it, top five largest software companies in the world at the time, um, we had a client who I just could not stand. And I did the unthinkable and she called being completely unreasonable, one thing or another. And I'd been shielding my team from it. Like, a, like you know, I was acting as an account manager at the time. And that's what you're supposed to do as an account manager. You don't want your team to catch the crap. They get enough, uh, you know, doing the heavy lifting on, on production work on creative work, don't, you know, it's your job as an account manager, an account director, um, a business development person to shield your team from that nonsense. And I had been doing it for a very long time with this person. And she calls in and starts raising her voice to me. And I went, hold on a minute. Do you hear that? And I hung up on her. I don't know if it was actually 
a wired phone. It was probably. <laughs> Did you have phone. like a twisty phone where you got to like spin yeah. the wheel thing in Beijing this in like two thousand five? No, it's actually nineteen sixty-two. Um, that, 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 no, that, that, that happened. And so I'm just thinking of this now because I'm not the paragon of, of being cool. Uh, uh, I, I definitely have lost my cool in the most like in situations where people would be like, why would you ever, that was so dumb. And that was dumb of me to do that because, um, frankly, her, her boss, oops. Um, anyway, (laughs) his boss, um, um, I think asked for me to be dismissed. And there are so many times, Nathan, that people have asked for me to be dismissed. Even in Tokyo, um, there was a situation, um, which I can tell you if you're curious. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. On the I, first meeting with me. Because like, I do why, a lot of account why work. Why is this guy? I do a lot of account work, so I'm very yeah. interested in hearing all the times you've been dismissed. It's, it, it, it's always very uh, interesting to hear these kind of stories. So I can't. I, I mean, I was eventually fired from uh, Godfrey Q and Partners pretty unceremoniously. But I, I mean, the, the expectation was that I should have been fired maybe two years before, um, which is, I think, what the, the founder of the company said to me when he called me. He's like, you, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Scott Silverman. Scott, Scott Silverman. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Yeah. I had my microphone on like on low volume. So, yeah. It was a little late there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but the point of that is that I've not always kept my cool. And on the other hand, Uh-oh. Nest- learn very quickly and like, um, sorry, Nestor, you, over the you imposter kind of, syndrome. Uh, Nestor, you kind so, of froze for a second. So we, we missed that last part you said. Oh, once, once you get over the imposter syndrome stuff and you have to, if you want to, move forward if you want to be anywhere near ambitious or even just to do your job um you have to just be confident and say well somebody's got to do this stuff and sometimes even a a trusted uh and admired team member like scott um is not going to be completely current with what's going on in the situation and you can't always go asking for permission for things or asking for advice for things you have to come into your own and that means taking risks, but also uh, as, as you get lucky and gain experience, then it means that you'll be better at it and you'll be better at, at keeping your cool in situations where you could completely blow it up um, and uh, be satisfied in the second, or you could be humble uh, and, and, and uh, just keep your cool and manage the situation and move forward and just think about the bigger picture. And there were lots of times that I, I, I did that. And doing more of that actually is what uh, made me a better team member and made me a better uh, person. And, and I, I'm absolutely certain that would be if I was an electrical engineer, um, if I was running an agency, uh, if I worked in government, whatever it was, that, that's something that 100% um, is, is beneficial and is part of growing and being a better uh, person, um, especially with regard to your career. So... Yeah, I mean, there was one time actually uh, at Godfrey Q where one of the founders of the companies like really blew up at me um, because I was talking about our accounting system. And I was telling him that with like plenty of other team members present, I was in Beijing and I was telling him that uh, 
that something along the lines, not at all disrespectful, but he didn't like me for a long time. Anyway, so this is why this happened. But uh, I said, you guys in, in, in California don't know the problems that we're, we're going through here with this accounting system. You don't understand it. And before I could finish, um, I got bombarded with uh, paraphrasing here. You little shit. I don't want to hear you saying crap like that. I started this business and I'm not going to take this kind of crap from you. Like would have loved to have fired me on the spot. And I responded very coolly, like people in front of me, because we were in a conference room in Beijing. They were like, like visually biting their fists and like looking at each other like, oh, my God, what is happening? That's he very heavy. Flipped out of me. Very heavy. But I mean, what could I do? I was just like very quick thinking and just like, look, nothing here has been said that is offensive. These are facts. And so what I said was, uh, I understand your frustration with that, but if you go across the street to the cafe, across from the office, so I put it in perspective into where he was, and you try to access the system from there, then and only then would you the difficulties that we're having because we're trying to connect to that system. So I went to some very simple technical details. And we're even in another country. So this makes it very difficult for us to do our job using this software. And, um, and then someone on, on the, the side over there where, where he was sort of echoed that and said, that is true. It is a problem that was actually demonstrated to us the last time these guys were in town. And then it quickly went from here to there. Now, that didn't change the fact that this guy did not like me at all. That didn't change it. But it did disarm the situation. Sounds like it, it made, made it completely baseless. It made him look stupid, really, right? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, or just look, made him look hot-headed, at least. It's absolutely, uh, and that wasn't my intention. But he he could do that on his own. Yeah, um, yeah. but he, regardless well, was... of what the situation is, like you you have to remember also that part of being in an organization like that, especially when we're dealing with a founder is that they're a founder and it's absolutely inappropriate. I don't care who you are, how much you're paying someone, how little you're paying someone, whatever it is, it, no one is above common courtesy. And most people in those positions uh, like will usually, at least in my experience, will usually maintain that. Um, but sometimes, in, like in that case, then that, that gets forgotten. And uh, that's unfortunate. But you as someone, like I could have said, you know what, you take this, don't talk to me that way. And then it would have been over, you know, and he would have loved that. <laughs> he really would have. Uh, that's, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, he um, could have but, pulled the, you're fired, like Vince McMahon from WWE, yep. you know, you could have given Absolutely, that opportunity. Yeah. But uh, that's not what I was about. Uh, <laughs> and um and interestingly enough, like even in the instance, maybe as a younger person, I would have done the, you know, well, I don't need this. Ah. Um, but I didn't even have a hot headed response. I was just like, why are you acting crazy? Why you got to be crazy? Look, this is what it is. Yeah. And you were, you and, were getting to business. You were kind of addressing a real business challenge, you know, and he's kind yeah. of, he's kind of so uh, being, distracting from that. Being and keeping your cool 
um, and, and just focusing on what's real is something that like uh, maybe for some people, and certainly for me, it wasn't easy in the beginning, but when it becomes natural, it is a life lesson that, I mean, it could save your life even. Um, and it's not, it's not always intuitive, but it is super important. Um, and I would say it's one of the most important keys to just making anything happen in something that I don't mean like making scrambled eggs and toast. I mean, something that takes a long time that requires building um, uh, months of work or even years, that particular way of dealing with it and reacting to it. Um, that's something that I learned um, working under uh, and with Scott. And it's something that I'm taking with me every day. Um, hey, to, to anything that I do. To step back a bit, we we're talking about some marketing marketing speak, you know, account people. So some people listening might not know what any of this stuff is. Can you kind of explain what is the structure of this kind of team you're on? What is an account person? And then who are the other people that you're working with in this kind of situation? Um, yeah, not to get into the weeds too much, but... Um, when you have a, a marketing campaign, right, when you're doing advertising, um, you, you need to have a relationship that starts between the team that is working on it, whether they're an internal team or whether they're an external agency, and um, the brand owner who has the, the biggest overall vision uh, for the company, and also the people that manage the products themselves, and, and also the people that sell the products, because the juxtaposition of all those different information points and you, like um, saying, like putting myself at the center of this as uh, like the, the agency side of things, you need to also have the perspective of your teams and what's possible uh, or what's a reach and what uh, experience dictates is going to be the best solution for what is the likely problem or scenario. So you have to get at the point where all of these perspectives come and uh, it's not a, a solid point. It's kind of a blob that keeps moving, right? Um, to manage that relationship, um, it may happen initially with like one of the founders of the agency or something, but eventually it needs to go to like a team lead on the agency side. So that's going to be like an account director. And that's someone who maintains the relationship and stays on top of like, what's the, what's the latest that's happening with this company that is going to affect how it is that we talk about what they do and how it is that, that we sell what they do. Because that, at the end of the day, the reason that they come to work with an agency is because these are people that are dedicated specifically to selling, I should say not selling, but creating demand for what they do. And to be able to do that in a way that's accurate, so people aren't surprised and then bail, uh, and in a way that is interesting, exciting, you have to have all of these details managed. And it means you have to manage that relationship to stay on top of what's what's the latest. There is no uh you know syndicated news update that comes from a client from a brand you have to maintain regular meetings you have to have uh, many times it turns into a, a social relationship a social relationship as well um just because that's the nature of like uh, the same thing as working with someone in the same office uh, there are people that you like and that you don't but you still have a relationship with them um, and it's one that's necessary because you need to be on top of the latest things. What happened in the last 24 hours, 48, 72, what happened in the last month? Um, because that's going to affect how it is that we do our job. So that relationship um, between the brand, uh, the product seller uh, or service uh, seller 
And the agency is typically managed by someone who's directing all that. And then you have people underneath uh, in that hierarchy that are uh, account managers, um, uh, and there are different names for what those people are, account executives, what have you. And um, I can't pretend to say that this is entirely current either because I haven't worked in a traditional oh, uh, agency for a long time. It's current. I mean, I'm still in this environment and that's definitely how it is. Um, yeah, so then you have account managers and they um, also do that kind of same stuff. Uh, probably uh, there's a lot of versatility with a good account manager. It's um, someone who uh, is going to be very good with people, is going to be able to uh, be interesting and, and someone that the client looks forward to engage with, uh, ideally, uh, doesn't miss a beat, doesn't is all over the details. Um, and uh, I mean, in, there have been times where I, I've acted as an account manager where it's been very secretarial, um, where you're kind of just taking orders for the fry cook. And, you know, there, that's why you have uh, in that realm project managers, which is another role in the team where they watch and keep track of like what's happening, what's been ordered, what are we supposed to make for this uh, particular brand? When is it supposed to be ready? When is when is it supposed to be to printers? When is it supposed to be online? Um, uh, are we using another resource for that outside of our own team internally? Um, and and so from there down, not that it's necessarily so hierarchical. I'll, I mean, it is, but it's it's not in a terrible way in my experience. Um, but there you start to get into the weeds and you start to uh, see different spe specific responsibilities you have, um, for example, with creative work, um, which is to say the things that we eventually see and hear, um, uh, you have, uh, creative directors, you have graphic designers, um, and then you have specializations there, animators, um, uh, video editors, uh, all of these then start to, uh, be the engine that creates something that is meant to then create that demand among the clients and the customers and the people that uh, your brand uh, eventually serves. And, and the goals that those, that those clients are going to have, um, and I'll try to wrap this up, I don't wanna make it uh, marketing 101 uh, too much, but um, the goals that they have could be anything from releasing a new product to introducing themselves for the first time to a larger region or, or to the world at large, um, uh, whatever it is, um, that creative, uh, is meant to uh, solve that problem, and then there's uh, then there's media and media purchasing, which is very lucrative. Uh, or, uh, it it certainly can be. Um, um, whether you're you're buying spots uh, that are algorithmically um, driven on on Facebook, and that takes us to Apple and Facebook. That's an interesting topic. Um, uh, or if you're doing out of home, which is uh, airport placements or signboards on bus stops and what have you. Um, whatever it is, it all ties back to this account relationship that gets managed with those those people and, and, and the brand uh, or the product managers on the, on the brand side. And then a brief or details about what's required then gets taken into this engine room uh, so that you get the right creative, uh, which is as I described previously. And so it's kind of like this feedback loop because, you know, it starts at the top in this relationship um, and 
the road with the client and it goes through this sort of um, chain of production and then it simmers at the bottom and then it steams back up to the client and if everything's been handled well even things like let's make it clear and in a way that's respectful that you can only say no three times if, if everything has been checked and you have to agree with the client and get you know that that's a difficult part of the, the account relationship sometimes. Um, I, ideally, it wouldn't be that difficult, but sometimes it's very difficult to say, this is what we're going to do. It's going to hit these five bullet points and you know, sub bullet points if you want. But we're going to give you three versions of that, and then we have to run with one of them. But you have to trust us, and that's why you're working with us, that what we're suggesting is going to do the job. It's going to increase that demand and create the demand for what it is that you guys do as your business. So that's, I think, my marketing 101, <laughs> at least structurally, team-wise. Okay, yeah. That, yeah, that went a lot deeper than what is an account manager, but I think it kind of explained the context of why the account manager exists. And then you said Scott was like the, the perfect account director. And so he's, he's a relationships guy, but, you know, he's also quite creative and stuff too, yeah? So he's, he kind of wears a few hats, huh? Well, I don't, you know, especially because I'm sick of talking about marketing right now. Uh, it's important to, to say this about Scott, and that is that marketing was just something he did because he had to at one point. I mean, if, if Scott could do whatever he wanted to do, he would be, you know, running a, a podcast that, that is listened to by millions of people. And they'd be lucky for it because he's got great perspective, great experience, and he's hilarious. And even when he's not trying to be. So that is something that made him successful as someone who controlled and managed accounts and those relationships. Um, just him being who he is. But, but in reality, uh, it, it was just almost an externality. Like he, he is someone who wants to entertain and does entertain. Um, and, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know how much you know about him getting started in marketing, but it was like, he was, I want to say doing, um, I don't know, brain fart here. What, what, what do you call, oh, improv. I think he was doing improv in Los Angeles, um, with a group and he was absolutely stoked to be doing that. And I think he was also doing a radio show. Uh, he may have been known as the beast, uh, in that show. He, he can correct that. Um, if we ask him. Well, I mean, um, but, I got to get him on the show. I mean, we've already talked about him coming on, but I think this is like a great teaser warm up for Scott coming on the show. You know, he's just, yeah, he's totally kick ass and he should be on the show. Um, so like one of the guys that he was doing this improv, and I, I hope I'm not getting that wrong uh, with Scott was like, I need to make some money, man. I've got a family. Um, I love doing this, but it's just not bringing in the dough. And he was like, well, why don't you come and work in marketing? You know, come work at Ogilvy. And that was sort of the beginning of, of all of this. It was the beginning of uh, my career. This is the beginning of your career in marketing. Uh, that It all started in California and, and I want to say in Los Angeles. Yeah. And the guy doing not improv. Too long, yeah, just, uh, you know, he's like, well, why don't you go do this? It's like, 
try it if you don't like it, whatever. Um, and that'd be a really good story to get rehashed uh, by Scott. But um, um, but that tells you everything is that is that it was just like everybody has to work. Everybody has to have a job. Um, I would say even if you're a billionaire, you need to do something. And 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 for those of us that are not billionaires, far from it. But you have to do something not just because it's what you're what you require as a person. Um, but because you need to put food on the table. And that very much is what draw, br brought Scott into marketing. Um, and, and so I don't think he, he has, he would say that he has not enjoyed it. Uh, although that he's got a lot of unpleasant stories, including uh, people shitting themselves on the Great Wall of China, uh, clients of his, and him having to clean it up. Oh man! Um, but That's, I'll, I'll leave that to him. That sounds that like him. a lot of fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, but well, but I, I it, it just wasn't. It's not like he was not. He didn't dream of, and neither did I, like being a marketer. And uh, on that note, shit on that job. And on that note, you said you were sick of talking to marketing, and I could do without talking about marketing since since that's yeah. also my job. Now, I wanted to ask you a question, and I'm kind of afraid it's one of those cliche guy in Estonia questions. What's up with that, like, e-citizenship or whatever? Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. I can't type right. Do you know what I'm talking about? The e-citizenship yeah, for um, uh, Estonia? Yeah, of course. E-residency. Yeah. Um, I actually became an e-resident just because I thought it was cool. Uh that you would have this encrypted card um, that you could use to manage your finances, um, like you could manage your, your bank account, but do it in an encrypted fashion. Uh, you could pay your taxes just by putting in your card. And, and that's, that's moved on. Like the way that it works now is you could do it through your mobile phone. It has an encrypted chip and encrypted communications. But e-residency, is a scheme that the Estonian government put together for people to run businesses uh, as if they were in Estonia, but not being in Estonia. So it would mean that you would be um, subject to the, 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 the tax laws that are uh, present and, and uh, prevalent here in Estonia. Um, for example, uh, by and large, there is no income tax on uh, businesses. So if you have, let, let's say um, you were paying me to be on this podcast, which if you want to, that's fine. Uh, let's say you paid me a hundred uh, bucks and then you paid it uh, into my um, my bank account, uh, but not, not my personal one, but my company one, then there would be no taxation on that until there's a disbursement. And at that point, then there's depending on what it is that I did for you. Let's say I made you some cupcakes, then I think it's uh, 20%. Um, uh, if I um, did something else, it would be maybe 16%. Or, I, I don't remember the exact breakdowns. But only at the point of disbursement, when it's something is paid out from the company, is there a taxation. So you can manage and get that benefit if you wanted to do that and have your business based out of Estonia remotely by having this e-residency system. And to set it up, you would need to go through um, some kind of identity. I think they've made it such that you even have to come to Estonia. You could do it at like an embassy. 
Um, yeah, so I that just, they verify I, who you are and anything you do for that business. I pulled up something here. Uh, looks like you can apply with this website, whatever it is. I'm not endorsing these guys, but uh, no, neither am like, I. Yeah. And and I don't I don't do e-residency. I I did it just because I thought it was cool when I first got here. But I it's it doesn't. There's no. I mean, I'm I'm a resident here, so there's no. <laughs> I'm I'm already in Estonia. You're not in like Uganda, where like it might be useful for you to to be doing this, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean. I could see how it would be useful for someone even in the U.S. Like because if you wanted to have income that was outside of the U.S. for your company, and you wanted to uh, manage taxes for your company that with that tax code, um, which you could see income-wise and in terms of what you would have to pay on income could be very very much preferable, then you would do it. Um, if you needed to have it a European entity for a client. Um, you could set it up, uh, set up a company very, very quickly. Um, I used to have a company in Hong Kong, um, but it was a huge pain in the ass. Doing all the tax reporting for the U.S. meant doing an entire uh, expensive, very expensive. I, I, I don't make the kind of money that would have made it permissive at the time anymore. Uh, but it was like thousands of dollars to do the annual uh, audit that would be necessary, not just for uh, the Hong Kong government, but also for the U.S. government. So it was like, at the time, I was like, well, I'm making a lot more money, but uh, it this costs a lot, and it, I, it wouldn't be possible uh, in, in my situation now. But if you look at the, the, the taxation services, uh, like accounting services, and what's required for annual reporting um, here, in Estonia, I mean, you could get away with paying a few hundred uh, euros for your entire uh, setup and, and, and you're done. And now you have uh, an Estonian uh, uh, payment uh, uh, company and, uh, and you can decide how it is that you want to disperse those things. Now, if you pay yourself from that company into the U.S., then you're taxed, at, you know, when all income in the U.S. is taxed according to your bracket. That has nothing to do with that. You're going to get taxed on anything that you pay yourself. But there is the advantage of no income tax to the company in Estonia. Plus, if you have to have that then for a European client or something, setting that up does make sense, not just to Ugandans. And again, I am not advertising this and saying you should do this, but it's something to look into if you wanted to have like an offshore company um, and something that's very convenient and, and um, I'd say not uh, there's good value in, in creating an Estonian company. So eEstonia is all about exporting that technology and, and encouraging people to take advantage of um, the, the tax code here. Um, and uh, I think the government has made like maybe a lot, like a couple million or something off of the, the scheme. And there are a lot of takers. There are a lot of people who have started to use it. Um, from practical in practical terms for for citizens here, e-residency is unrelated and and there's no point in it for people that are residents here. Um, but what you do get is things like your medical records, your uh, health insurance, your 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 um, annual taxes. All of that gets um, done through your um, your encrypted identity. So I have an identity card that has like an encrypted chip on it, but I also have my mobile phone, which has uh, an encrypted um, connection that I can uh, 
I can do my taxes actually because of that that encryption and the identity uh, confirmation uh, here in Estonia in a, literally in one minute, if not less, because everything that comes into my account is associated with me and shared with the government immediately. Uh, on a month-to-month -month basis, uh, all of that stuff is, you, you just check it and then you say yes. So that's a matter of seconds. And at the end of the year, when it's time to submit your, your taxes and do your tax returns and all that, it's all facilitated by the fact that there's no paperwork. It's, everything is online. And that's possible because of this encrypted ID that everyone has. So that's something that could be very valuable to, um, to countries that spend a lot of money on, on, on just even paper. Uh, uh, and uh, and requiring like signatures having to be mailed one place to another, all of that is just eliminated entirely. Um, so time-wise, cost-wise, for bureaucracies, that's the advantage of the the e Estonia thing. Um, now we, and, we talked a bit yeah. earlier about like centralization and the dangers of that. How about this? Because it's it's very centralized. But uh, yeah. how about like cybersecurity? Is there some vulnerability there with the system? Well, I, I would say one thing um, with regard to how things are stored in the system, and, I, and I'm not um, a systems engineer, so I, I can't tell you in great detail, but I do understand it to the point that it uses something called X-Roads, which is not like blockchain uh, exactly, but it has the similarity in that every record that is associated with a person, a business, uh, or, or anything that's online is can be accessed by uh, depending on permissions. So if you have permissions from like the the Customs and Taxation Bureau um, to access anyone's uh, records, then when you access it, then there's an addition appended onto that record showing that this person, this specific person with this particular ID and this particular position accessed it on May 14th at 9, 12 a.m. And so what that does actually is because it's uh, a public record, um, it is actually kind of a decentralized system in that, uh, in that um, permissions, uh, whether they're granted or not, depending on your permissions, you can access, modify, um, and, uh, and do whatever you need with those systems. But it's, it's, it's appended onto that record, um, onto that data so that in perpetuity, anyone can see what's happened with this. So it means if you were uh, dealing with like a bankruptcy case or, or a, a civil litigation or something, like you, you can't have like a corrupt uh, bad faith player, like I keep saying, um, or like a, a bad cop in a criminal case come in and edit a record without it being like stamped on that this is the person who did it. And actually there's been cases like Estonia is far from a perfect place. I mean, what country is, but um, not too long ago, they were forging uh, IDs, which are these encrypted uh, systems like associated with each one, one person. And of course the person that was issuing the, the IDs was a cop who accessed the system and was like, and just a bit of an idiot. And they got busted like really quickly because they're like, you issued like, hundred of these things. What are you fucking stupid? You're in jail for the rest of your life. And that's how the X-Road system is meant to work, is if you're going to 
do anything uh, related to these IDs, the moment we catch someone with them, we can see who issued it without any problem. Whereas um, we have a legacy system in the US which could really benefit from something like this, where if you issue a, a, a driver's license from you know, the state of Texas um, and you do it for, I don't know, 500 bucks so that someone has a fake ID, even though it's a, it's a real one, like if a kid or a criminal gets caught with that ID, good luck finding out who did it, you know? that's it's probably impossible so that's the difference and that's where decentralization and centralization comes into play with this thing cool now we talked before we started recording about how many countries you lived in and i want to revisit that so how many countries you're american yeah american citizen yeah it's the only citizen i have okay but outside of america how many countries have you lived in um so I said six before, and yeah, was that like that? That includes the U.S. or doesn't include the U.S.? Yeah, no, it includes the U.S. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, well, it I, doesn't really I matter. The U.S. until I was. Yeah, I'm just trying to think it through. Um, <laughs> I, 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 the second country that I lived in, I, I was born and raised in Chicago, and then when I was. Uh, uh, I mean, we had family in Tennessee and in New York, um, so we traveled a bit before. But when I was eight years old, my sisters and I moved to Ecuador uh, for two years. And part of that was that um, literally uh, my my father was in such regret that we didn't speak Spanish. Um <laughs> Honestly, he's, he's just like, why did why didn't I speak to you guys in Spanish enough that you, I mean, I can't even have a conversation with you? He's like, Go live with your grandma. So we was, lived with our grandma for two years in Ecuador. Oh, so that was so the first he, country I lived in. So I was thinking he was like relocated there because he spoke Spanish or something, but he just wanted you guys to speak Spanish. Uh, yeah, it seemed like a real like a, a loss. Um, it would be, I mean, to be honest, it'd be weird if Nestor Santana didn't speak Spanish, right? I would think so, a little bit. Is Nestor um, a Spanish name? Um, so it is originally a Greek name. It's uh, millennia old. It's um, You'll find it in the Iliad and the Odyssey. The, the character was uh, Nestor from Sandy Pylos. And, and that name uh, from antiquity then got used a lot in i think mediterranean countries and as a result of that because of the nature of uh, immigration and colonization of uh, south america then you have um nestor as a common name in countries like argentina chile ecuador um probably more common in argentina for some reason um but what i've discovered actually when i came to eastern europe was that uh nestor is also a common name in the ukraine I, and I, that surprised the hell out of me. Um, although, you know, Cyrillic has its roots and uh, very obvious ones typographically in in uh, the Greek language. Yeah. Uh, and they certainly are closer. So um, oddly enough, in Estonia, people often get confused because Nestor is a last name here. And it has been, it's like a an Estonian last name. So they think so, it's, it's Santana it's a Nestor. Very old, 
Santana, well, yeah, people think, is that I'm your like, first oh, name? Going on? His, his parents must have loved Santana, and they just named him Santana Nestor. There, there is a, a, a guy, uh, a cool fellow that uh, I know from Beijing, whose name is Santana Wilson. He's of, uh, uh, he's American, but he's of uh, Brazilian uh, ancestry. Um, so Santana is also a very common last name in Brazil. Um, I'd say probably more common than in uh, uh, other South American countries and, and even in Mexico, where Carlos Santana, I think, is from. Or and then you maybe, said yeah, your grandmother's in Ecuador. Was that correct? Yeah, she's since passed, uh, but that's that's where that was the first country. So I think Sorry. actually I'm going to play it safe and say I've lived in five countries. Okay, I've properly lived in. Yeah. Oh wait, so that includes the U.S. Right? Yes, it does include. Okay, the US. so you're four because that's the thing. I was going to do this. Oh wait, it's 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 kind of messed up anyway. I was going to do five Mr. Worldwides because it's basically it's based <laughs> on how many foreign countries you lived in. So if you're American, yeah. so if we're going down to four, it's a bit of a downgrade let, on the air. Well, let me ask this. But just yeah, as a last ditch effort, what what qualifies? What's the time threshold for having lived in a country? Three months. Three months straight. Yeah, I missed it. You can't just be like I, I, a few weeks. Here. I lived in Finland for just about a month so i guess it doesn't count well a month and you're in estonia how similar are they are they like almost the same or are they very different uh the short answer is quite different um finnish people and estonian people are quite different but yeah you would think there is a big <laughs> huge but um from the outside perspective so the uh people that have no familiarity you couldn't find two closer countries, uh, at least um, language-wise, um, and to some degree, uh, culture-wise. The, the entirety of the Baltic region, including uh, you know all the way to Denmark and and, and Sweden, um, and then the the other Baltic countries, Lithuania, uh, Latvia. There there are elements that are common throughout them that are like geographical things. Um, there's also like this. Uh, common, uh, especially along the, the like the, the the Finnish Bay and and going down to uh, Lithuania, this common history with uh, Imperial Russia, and then again, and then after that, Soviet Russia, which has not always been pleasant. <laughs> I'd say more unpleasant than not. Um, but there there are similarities there that like after living here, you start to see that you never would have uh, you wouldn't get even as a tourist. So um, uh, there are people that would say, oh, Estonian and Finnish, that's, they're very, very similar. But after having lived here and, and uh, speaking the language as well, you see actually they're really different. I mean, very, very different. I think now, it's like, um, I don't know, like po Polish people and Russian people, like to the uninitiated, be like, I don't know, those are just Slavic people, right? Like, no, they're, not only are they different, but they actually fucking hate each other. Now, uh, the Finnish, do they eat a lot of reindeer? Um, uh, it depends, I think, on where you live. If you live in Lapland, you know, you get closer to the Arctic Circle, then you're probably getting a lot of reindeer sausage. Yeah. Um, I, I can tell you this, uh, even here in Estonia, I can go to the grocery store and I can 
I can get reindeer sausage. That sounds delicious. Now, yeah, I, I did a layover in Finland once. I was flying to Germany from China, and there was a, mm -hmm. I forget what airline it was. It was a, I think it was a Chinese airline, and it was super cheap. It was like Junyao Air or something. It was super cheap to fly oh, through wow. Helsinki. Is that Finland, right? Yeah. Am I? Do I got that? Yeah, right? it's the capital. Yeah, Finland, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. So Helsinki, and then I, then I went to Germany after that. But it was a very nice, quiet airport. Looked like a pleasant place outside. I didn't go outside, but there was a lot of reindeer goods, you know, at the yeah. little gift shop, been, yeah. at the little sausage joint. You get like a hot dog, but it's you know Scandinavian style or something, where it's like a reindeer sausage. I don't know. I I had the airport experience of Finland, so I don't really know yeah. what it's all about. But reindeer was the impression I got. It's a reindeer kind of place. Yeah, um, moose as well. You get. Um, and as soon as you cross the border, they, uh, although you, you can find it here too, not in all grocery stores, but you can find uh, tinned uh, bear, bear meat. Um, so, and it's not like, oh, this is now super, how is, super oddity. How is the tinned bear meat? How does it taste? I have to admit, I haven't tried it. Ah, well, how about I the have, reindeer? I have done moose and reindeer and, uh, you know, I, I haven't. Well, hold on. I think I have had moose steak, and I remember thinking it was it was great. Um, I mean, maybe they tenderize it or something. Maybe they just knew which cut to to put in there. It was pretty good. Um, but the thing about reindeer sausage is like, I mean, there's a lot of like a good sausage. You're gonna probably add in some some other fats, right? They probably put in some pork fat, and then of course seasonings. So, I mean, when it comes to sausage. Yeah. You can say it's, uh, let's say it's 80% um, deer meat, and then the rest of it is stuff that makes it palatable. <laughs> okay. But isn't deer meat good? Like, it's like really good, lean red meat? Um, you know, I have, I've never bought it like in like uh, untreated format. You've got me curious, though. Now, I, I might actually go for it soon. I'm going to go look for it. I've been so they grow turkeys here, um, and I I actually eat a lot of turkey. I, I'll get like a big turkey thigh, like you know a couple kilos chunk, and I'll make stews out of that. Um, and pe nobody can tell that it's not beef, um, just because of the way I make it, and also just the nature of the meat. I um, I wasn't yeah, expecting to you to say beef. I was expecting to hear like chicken or goose or something like that. They're like they think so turkey no, it's, um, turkey soup. They think I it's mean, beef. Not, not a soup. I mean, that's yeah. a probably would taste a bit more poultry like in that case. But I will. Um, I, I do like a beef bourguignon style stew, and oh. I use turkey. I use turkey, and it just people are just like, oh, which which meat is this? And I tell them turkey, and they're like, no, come on. I thought it was reindeer or beef or uh, some kind of red I'm, meat. That's amazing. Yeah, and I think it's a great, great meat. Um, turkey, I got a lot of time for turkey. And turkey has an interesting story. The only reason it's called turkey is because uh, Europeans associated this new bird that came from the New World, from America, uh, with uh, Orientalism or exoticism. And exotic things came from turkey, so they called it turkey. 
fucking weird. I thought it was going to be like because their heads were red and those guys like wear those fez caps or whatever in Turkey. You do it. That you was know, my that assumption. Be, I think we can retroactively say that was the reason, but <laughs> in reality, it was just it was just something foreign and exotic, so they called it Turkey. Look at those turkey birds. Yeah, they're so uh, turkey and, and exotic. I bet they're delicious. In the parlor. <laughs> yeah, because you go happens. to these Renaissance fairs in America, and it's supposed to be harking back to like old European days, and you're eating turkey legs, but turkeys are like a North American bird. I never really got that about Renaissance fairs. Why the turkey legs? Yeah, so you know you wouldn't have gotten turkeys in Europe until the 16th, maybe 17th century more widely. And it oh. was, it was like a Renaissance. It was like a six. Yeah. Okay. There you go. But it, but it would have been, you know, at, at least I'd say 17th century where you started to get it more widely available. Uh, and even then it was, you know, so rich people would eat it. So then uh, there's a curious thing actually with our turkeys in America is that the domesticated turkeys that were raised and made to be, you know, bigger breasts and more meat, um, probably a bit less uh, cantankerous. Th those birds got brought back to uh, America, like uh, even before uh, the colonial, uh, the colony times, and they they started to be the bird that was preferred to the wild turkeys. So you've got these domestic turkeys that have changed over the centuries drastically, and then you've got the wild turkeys. So that domestication by and large happened in Europe, and then we got them back in America. Yeah, I did not um, know that. But about yeah, turkeys. it's not totally inappropriate in a Renaissance fair, I think. To, to have uh, okay. Yeah, I always feel like the Renaissance fairs, they're trying to be more medieval. It doesn't feel like Shakespeare times. It always feels like, no, you're I don't right. know. That, it wouldn't be appropriate. Like they wouldn't Braveheart times. Single turkey. They but, had a single turkey. you know, they made us wear masks, too. So that wasn't very relevant. And they were actually they were trying to do plague times. They tried to I mean, it was actually a lot of fun. I went to this one called the Sherwood Forest Fair in Texas uh, last month. And I feel like they could have done it better if they gave everybody like disposable plague masks, you know, like the little bird looking mask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah like they have like the, these. Uh these like disposable ones that are that shape. If they gave those out, I thought that wearing masks would be appropriate, but it was all outdoor and they still made people wear masks. And we're in Texas where you don't need to do that. You don't need to make people wear masks outside or inside for that mm. matter, but they still had people do it. And it was just kind of took away the magic of a Renaissance fair and people pretending like they're in the times, but if they were plague masks, it would have worked. And uh, that's a missed opportunity for them. I, w I would pay a couple extra bucks for the plug mask. I would have done it. That's just me. <laughs> that's just me. Uh, Estonia. I've, I don't have a big connection to that country. I did go to school with a guy in high school who I think his family was with the Estonian embassy in Japan. And I was living in Japan. And then yeah. I worked with a girl in China from Estonia. Now, I've never been there. What's what's it like? How, how could you describe Estonia to somebody who's never been there before? Um, first of all, it's, it's hard to have a big connection with Estonia because it's uh, not a big place. It's uh, uh, less than a million and a half total population. Um, so 
I mean, what's the population of Austin? It, it sort of gives you perspective on how small it yeah, is. Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't even know the answer to that question, but it's probably a lot. It's bigger than Estonia by far. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, the country gained independence uh, from the Soviet Union in 1991 when that just fell apart. Um, and it's actually, so depending on who you talk to, some people don't like it being put this way, and I understand why. Uh, but the second independence, the first independence was earlier in the century, uh, their independence from Imperial Russia. Um, and that happened for all the Baltic states, uh, which is those, those three sisters, uh, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, so then when the Soviet Union was just melting away, they, they saw their chance and they said, okay, well, we're out. And then as soon as the uh, Estonian government saw a chance, they joined the European Union. And they knew that being who they are, being where they are, and knowing their history, which includes constantly being ruled over um, for, for, for centuries and centuries. They were uh, a land that was controlled uh, by the Swedes for I think even up to now the longest time, um, the Danes, uh, and uh, there was a Germanic um, sort of managerial class that's always been here even in, until the 20th century. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, they took their independence and then uh, joined in, uh, joined EU as soon as they could. And they were really anxious to join NATO um, because of uh, their history, because of their geography and because of their uh, big brother just to the east, Russia. So they pulled that off and uh, as a result uh, have really been able to lift themselves out of um, uh, a bad situation that had been continuing for, for centuries. Um, as far as uh, sort of current day Estonia, it has one of the highest, um, uh, give me a second, a bit of a break. Yeah, no worries. Hi, Mom. Oh, okay. I thought I muted your shit. I'm trying to mute your shit, but it's not working. So that was not my mother. I just called my wife, mom, which it's not, it's not weird. It's, we have kids. That's okay. All right. I'm not judging. It's judgment-free zone here. Um, yeah. Is so, that like an, uh, is, is that like an Estonian thing, though? Is that like something you guys do over I, there? I don't I don't know. It's like the kids call her mom, and so I call her mom. She calls me dad. I do it's, that it's too, that, man. It, that's... Dude, I mess up sometimes, and like I'll say something like related to my mom. Like we, my my basically, my son calls my mom tiny mom instead of grandma. <laughs> She's tiny mom. So like I've accidentally called my wife tiny mom before, and she didn't like that. She it was it's, no. You know, she's not tiny that's, mom. She's that's just not mom. a good mistake to make. Yeah, so um, they, they, one of the highest um, per capita incomes, uh, uh, I think it is the highest per capita income among the Baltic, um, uh, the, the three sisters, Baltic states. 
Um, Finland is uh, higher, but um, identity-wise, uh, there are some people here that feel, uh, a lot of people that feel that they should be Nordic. Um, part of the reasoning, or at least the argument for it and the litigation for it would be that Finland is a Nordic country. Uh, we have a very close and similar history, a very like the closest modern language to them, etc. Um, as an example, to sort of show how how close they uh, aspire to be or or believe to be and probably are. Um, I mean, geographically, there's no argument, right? It takes a couple hours on a ferry on a to get across the the bay to, from Tallinn to Helsinki. Um, but uh, the national anthem has the exact same music for both countries, uh, Finland and Estonia. So they borrowed it from Finland. And then it has, obviously, the words are in Estonia and not in Finnish. Um, but there isn't a lot of intelligibility between the languages. And, yeah, that's, um, what I've, that's what I've heard, that Finnish itself is a pretty unique language in terms of like all the kind of mother languages and all that. And then Estonian is similar to Finnish. Yeah, it's the uh, I can put it this way very honestly. Um, it, if I had to communicate entirely in Estonian with a Finnish person, we can get by. Like if we had to do rudimentary things or even tell our like family histories, we could understand each other. Um, it's not it's far from perfect. And there are like some treacherous uh false friends, uh, as they, they call them, like words that mean one thing in one language. And uh, one example is the, the word for Bible in Finnish is Ramat. And in Estonian, that just means book. Um, and, and then there are some raunchier ones after that. But um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that similarity gives you a bit of a perspective on it. But also my, my previous statement that they're Finnish people and Estonian people are very different, very different. It has a lot to do with uh, their uh, the 20th century, late 20th century history, I'd say. Um, they, the mix um, of the country is, uh, it's not densely populated. The most densely populated area is perhaps not surprisingly the capital of Tallinn. Um, there, it, about half the country is covered in forest. And as soon as you leave the capital of Tallinn, even uh, uh, taking into account the other major cities, size of this place, uh, there's there's not a lot of uh, density in population. You have an elite sort of group of Estonians that um, are exceptionally well educated, have traveled. Um, uh, there is a, a thing that the e-residency people like to trumpet is that the, they have more unicorn startup companies that have come out of Estonia than any other country in the world. Um, famously uh, uh, cited is the, the example of Skype. Skype was uh, uh, formed and uh, created by uh, a team of uh, several people that were from Estonia and, you know, before they were sold to Microsoft. Um, Wise, formerly known as TransferWise is a more uh, recent one. Um, a lot of sort of this startup and, and, and investment um, that happens here in, uh, uh, in, in Tallinn. Um, but that, that sort of strata of society here is, uh, they're an incredible group, very, very well-educated, world-traveled, um, and very ambitious. Um, and 
I would say they're a minority. <laughs> uh, the, the Estonian people are, uh, are sort of stratified in this way. Then after that, you have people that are also educated, um, but haven't maybe traveled much uh, and sort of have a more um, internal sort of view of things in life. Um, and uh, the education system here seems to be really quite good. There, there, there's been news and internationally that uh, there's a lot of um, a, a lot of reason to praise uh, the system. They've modeled it, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a lot after the Finnish system and the Swedish system and the German uh, system of education, and they, they've um, been investing uh, particularly uh, in teachers and in the education system, and and they they have a a, a big part of um, a substantial part of attention that is paid to uh, making sure that that families can can happen that they can that people can have kids that they can grow and that they can not have to worry about uh, uh, you know things like medical bills or or education fees and these kinds of things so there's a lot of um, government support regardless of income um, for young families um, and for uh, supporting children and the creation of them and if you have a country that's uh, you know floating under a million and a half then you can see why they would want to do that and be really serious about that um, so going uh, down in the strata of, of uh, the type of people you have here then you have like um, a working class group that um, have a very, very strong uh, identity. And maybe that goes up to, uh, to everyone, a very, very strong uh, Estonian identity. And, and you have um, at this point, although at all the levels of that, I'd say you have this uh, uh, binary uh, uh, element, which is that there are, there are Russian Estonians, and then you have ethnically Estonian Estonians. And the difference between them um, in some cases, and certainly as you, as you go down into, um, Sort of the working class uh, uh, realm um, is language um, and uh, some in some cases ideology uh, you know when you get into the older people a lot of them have uh, very good memories about the soviet times even not not even that older maybe a little bit older than um, uh, myself like uh, people going between 40 and 50 they, there is some nostalgia for the Soviet times when sort of everything was kind of sorted. Uh, you didn't um, have to be in the rat race. Uh, there was, there was, everything was sort of sorted out for you. And, and Estonia was one of the more uh, idealized places in the Soviet Union. Um, it was sort of the more, one of the more Western, as all the Baltic countries were, the, the more Western style kind of living uh, and, and Soviet countries. But um yeah, so that, that 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 binary element is one of the divisive, um, uh, divided parts of the society here. And there's there's this people from Russian uh, heritage, and then there's uh, people that identify more with the Estonian part. Um, I've personally found that uh, I, I've met people that are like really very uh, open and cool about like having Russian heritage, or uh, they're just like you know Russians, Estonians. We've mixed so much over the years that what's what's the difference nobody can say that they're not russian uh ethnically or genetically uh and then there are people who are like oh russian no 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 we we are the, the purest of the pure estonians um and then that's where you get into some ugly stuff which is that um 
there is there is a, a, a sort of a nationalistic and, and a racially uh, motivated uh, ideology that is quite big here, I'd say. And I think a lot of people, especially in the capital, and especially in those up, uh, upper stratas, would say that, that that's not a thing. We don't have that here, but it's rubbish. Um, even their own uh, equivalent of like a mashing up of the FBI and the CIA, they call it capo. Um, they put out a, a report just this year saying that this is one of the biggest problems that we have right now is um, uh, like racial extremism um, and uh, the building of uh, of sentimentalities that that lean towards that. But is it um, is it like I mean, a white supremacy or is it like a is it anti-Russian? Like how, where where do they stand? Is it like an Estonian national identity thing or is it like a more of a white thing? Yeah. Um, I, I can't pretend to try and simplify it because, um, but I think I can condense it to this. And that is um, that the most egregious parts of that very uh, are, are only a very small percentage of it is vocal. There is a much wider uh, group of people that believe and espouse, yeah, white, white power and supremacy. Um, but publicly, there's even um, a, a political party here called uh, the, you know, the Conservative Party. And they publicly say, no, we are not racist. We just don't want our country to be for anyone else other than for Estonians. And that would include Swedish people. They're white. We don't want them here either. They can come and visit, but we don't want them mixing in with our people and deluding us. And like, oh, wait a minute, you just said you don't want them mixing in. So how is this not racial? Like, well, because we're talking about white people and they're white, we don't want them here either. And so that's sort of the above the line um, uh, rhetoric. And, and then, um, but there, there is a big problem with it here and it's, it's growing. That conservative party, for example, that I'm talking about has uh, in the latest polls, <clears throat> like 30%, uh, uh, almost 30%, if not 30% already, of uh, public support in, in a poll, which should be pretty fairly accurate. And, and that's climbing up like um, from uh, from last year pretty quickly. So and that's, that's know, a big problem. Yeah. You know, you as a, you know, you're not Estonian. Does that make you feel threatened basically? Is that you're basically no, a target because you've, you've married in and you've taken one of their women. Is that kind of the, yeah. the idea? Uh, it's, it's definitely, I'm not, uh, like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm unsafe or anything like that. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it, I have had a run-in with, with people like this, a real bad one too, actually. Um, but it's not like in the middle of, in, of town in Tallinn, like it's not something that's, that's a problem. Um, it's, it's not out in the open. And, and, you know, the way that I described it previously is like, there's, that's part of these kinds of, um, these kinds of mentalities and this extremism is there are elements of it that are very loud and very out there. Um, but there is a lot of it that just stays underneath because that's where it has to stay because it is still fringe and there's still, there's still a majority that are not interested in that, or at least see that that's destructive and that's a problem. So, it's not like there are people like running around um, 
very frequently bashing uh, foreigners, um, and I don't I don't feel unsafe here. But but no, I, I've I've had my run with these people, and, and they exist. And uh, uh, you know, you, you do have to keep in mind as some like someone who is coming to Estonia. Uh, if you were interested with um, like technology-wise or job offers, which is something that's happening more and more, like they don't, they have a shortage of like developers, for example. Um, and um, so, if you were going to come here, that's that is a thing. But I'd have to say also that it's also a thing in America. Um, I mean, the tensions that we're experiencing are not just tensions in in America. We're we're people are dying, and uh, uh, it, it starts with, uh, you know, uh, we can say culture wars, and then it turns into these hot wars, and people get hurt, and people people die. This is something that is a problem all over the world. I'd say here it's just a bit more of a problem, and I would also say with full confidence that local authorities would would deny it. Um, but on the other hand. Believe me, you can see Kapo put out this report saying this is a massive problem for us. We need to deal with it now. Uh, and it will get worse uh, before it gets better. Uh, but well, no, I, looking, I don't feel unsafe like day to day, anything like that. I'm looking at, I mean, we got the Wikipedia thing pulled up right now. And then it's, you look at the ethnic groups and then 24.7% uh, Russians. Now, would these people, would they be targets of that ultra nationalist group? Or is it more like, anybody who's like really, really, really non-Estonian. Like how does that, with the ultra nationalists, how does that work? They, yeah, they, it's, it's complicated for Estonians too, because like they, they're, even though there are people that are, that are definitely deluded in thinking that there is a pure Estonian group. Um, it, it's just historically, like you, you would just know that that's just not possible. You're Polish, you're Ukrainian, you're mixed in with the Finns. There's a lot of Russian, like uh, there's there's Swedish. Like when you're ruled by other countries for so long, and I don't mean this in any insulting way, when you've been slaves for centuries, your purity is a joke. It's just not possible. Um, so if you have Polish people coming in here, um, then the, the, the problems in, in, or Ukrainians, for example, and they would come as workers, you know, especially in like construction or otherwise, then there's going to be a friction there that isn't always, I'd say mostly is not associated with ultra-nationalism, but just we're different. And so we're having these, these things and, and, you know, I don't know, maybe they think that maybe that that's, that's probably a gateway to, to nationalism for people because this kind of stuff comes from fear. And fear that then turns into confidence and then overconfidence and then prejudice. So pride leading to prejudice. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and a lot of, I'd say, the, the more extreme elements of that, uh, and I'd say this anywhere in the world, and I, I really, I don't, this is bad stuff. I mean, and, and it exists and it's, it's getting worse, but I, I don't want to say this is something that is unique. Like, we do have this problem in America. And there is this problem in surrounding countries in, in Europe. And it's something that we're, that, that you know, you'll, you'll find it. And uh, it, it, it's something that we're talking about globally. 
Um, but, uh, but the association is very frequently with ignorance. Ignorance that then leads to these hatreds. Ignorance combined with fear yeah. leads to these I think, problems. I think the big part of it is a scarcity mentality. You know, it's like Estonia for Estonians. Anybody coming in is, is taking our benefits and we're paying into the system. You know, there's always going to be this like, what about us? We're paying into it. So there's always going to be this kind of uh, exclusion, you could say. But I mean, I think it comes from this like fear and scarcity, that that kind of thing. You know, there's there's it, some underlying. It's definitely, you're right. It, it, and it, all this, uh, not to apologize for, you know, the nastiest elements of this, uh, because it is pure evil. It, it is absolutely that. And you can see you know, how it is that World War II happened and how it is that those, that, that, that people rallied around these, these imagined principles of like, just because you are who you are, it means that you're due quite a lot and you're better than these people. It's, it's like what we were talking about before. Well, God said that your house is mine, your land is mine. So get the fuck out because that's the ultimate authority. I'm justified. It's very similar. It's something that, uh, you know, it goes back for as long as we've, you know, since we were cave dwellers, that that's a very seductive thing for people, but it all, it all just, it, it, it does get perpetuated through just a, a lack of information and no amount of, for example, if I take myself as, as an example, no amount of me saying I pay in the top 5% of all residents in this country taxes. I pay a lot of taxes in this country, way more than I would in the US. And I could say that to someone who's like this, one of these white nationalist uh, um, and, uh, people in Estonia, and they wouldn't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. They're just like, no, you're, 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 you're an N-word. You're not from here. You know, that's, that's- Would they really that... call you an N-word? You're oh, like, they call, uh, you're these like kinds white... of people, they call anyone. You're white passing, I guess. In, yeah, no, maybe I mean, in America you are, but in maybe in Estonia you're not. You know, you're in you're in a pretty pale place. There's no diversity here whatsoever, and that's yeah. you know again, I don't blame well, them for that. It's, it's Estonia. Just, it is what I mean, it is. It's, I mean, it's not. A, that's the thing with with diversity. I feel like everybody's trying to be like America. We're like, oh, we're diverse. America's the the immigrant country. We're supposed to be diverse. Yeah. But like That's right, you're yeah. like a small yeah, yeah, Baltic yeah. country. How many migrants do you need? Like, uh, is it, they're not America, you know? Like, it's Estonia. So well, that's well. You put it that way. The how many migrants do you need? You know, this is a problem again in America, in California, um, uh, anywhere where you have agriculture or where you have the need for labor. Like we're having a global shortage of this. You talk about, you know, a place that is, that was a big part of your character, I, I believe, uh, and certainly a big part of your life, Japan. Like population-wise, they are fucked right now. You know, we're talking about they're at what 100, um, what are they, 120 million, the whole country. Um, by 2050, they're supposed to be like 75 million. That's the trajectory they're on. Birth rates are way low, 30%, above 30% of the population is above 65. They don't have people. So yeah, 
what is uh suge what, what's um what's and the thing i i've noticed in japan like you know i i used to live there when i was in high school in the early 2000s back then it's not that different than how it is today i feel like but there are a few differences and one of them is that there's more foreigners working low-wage jobs in japan there's uh like convenience store workers they were like indonesian students and that kind of thing like yeah. you didn't see that in the early 2000s you see that now though yeah, and it's because you, you have to have it, but but they're, it's like pulling teeth for the Japanese because they still, you know, it's it's the same thing all over. It's like they have, there are people that are very vocal and say, we are the Yamato bloodline. Um, don't fuck with it. You know, that purity is not something that uh, should be compromised. And and then and then there are people that are like, well, you know, it's just our... Our, our nationality like we we don't want to get rid of that we don't like we can't have people from brazil mixing too much although that's happened quite a lot uh specifically with brazilians um and and there's this problem that like yeah we we don't have enough people to work at the 7-elevens we don't have enough people you know to get right to one of the core problem uh, core roots of the problem um we don't have the people to work at the the retirement homes and so then you have you have to have, you have to open it up. You have to make it more. So what I was going to say was the prime minister, um, I believe, proposed that uh, uh, 350,000 visas be issued, like five-year visas. But the restrictions on it are insane. You can't bring your family. You can't. Um, uh, yeah, well, that was the biggest restriction. Was like you can't bring your family, and you can't stay longer than five years. So it's like we. We want to deal, with, and, and 350,000 is a drop in the bucket. It's not enough to deal with the labor shortages in, in Japan, um, which like people are, are desperate to hire there. Um, they, they need people. But then they say, well, this is our solution to it, which is fucking rubbish. Like either the only solution for Japan in this case is they need to change culturally. They need to change their attitude. And it's not just nationalist people. Everybody in Japan has to be like, look, we need to, we're at a critical point where we need to allow more immigration. We're not going to fuck our way back to 120 million. It's not going to happen. But couldn't they just keep doing what they're doing where they allow people to work there, but they don't become Japanese, but they have a good life in Japan. It's like a green card thing. But then they're like... Mm -hmm really like hunkered down oh Jap japan is japan blah, blah, blah. but they still have a bunch of migrant workers and it works itself out could they not just do that though if they like isn't that like a compromise i think they're those are two those are two different problems one is how do we deal with the immediate issue of a labor shortage and the other is how do we deal with the fact that we're shrinking super fast as a country like if you don't yeah. if you don't get over the yamato bloodline shit, then your country <laughs> is going to go down tens of millions of people in population every five years yeah well, i mean it sounds it sounds like estonia like what you said about all the the benefits and things it sounds like it's a very pro-family place like they're making it, it easy is, yeah. for people to have families it just japan not have such like initiatives or what do you think so i yeah i think they do um but there are this this is back to what I'm saying, that the biggest barrier here and to the biggest population barrier is cultural. It's not logistical. It's not the government setting up. And I'll tell you, like there something like 
a third of the women that are in childbearing ages in Japan are uh, not having kids and not getting married. And that has everything to do with the fact that they don't want that life. Because culturally, women have to do specific things for the kids. And men, even if they're willing to, have an anxiety about it. Uh, and somewhere in the back of their head, they're like, hey, this, is not, this is not for me. It's just, the burden everywhere falls on women more, but it's especially big culturally and difficult in Japan. And that is a negative feedback loop with regard to this problem. So again, my opinion is that it's a cultural problem that's going to be either Japan's going to have a, a, like a, a total cultural revolution, a, bad phrasing, um, a, a, a huge change in their culture and in the way that they relate to each other, women, men, uh, uh, familial roles, or they're going to just shrink into nothingness <laughs> be taken you know, over by you know i'd say i have a big connection to japan because i went to school there and i i know a lot of japanese people but i'd say most of the japanese people i know have a very international background and i don't really know the pulse of like japanese people my age like what do they think about all this stuff i mean i know what the people i grew up with think but they're tainted with the global perspective you know i don't know right. the japanese japanese perspective except for one dude i got one dude who i know from college uh beijing study abroad too for that matter mm -hmm. um who's very japanese and like worked in nagoya for a long time you know he's not like a cosmopolitan tokyo guy he's like a nagoya guy you know this is this is super corporate japan where the only life is corporate life there's nothing else outside of that I have I have a German friend that's that's kind of like that. He's total uh, he's a total salary man, and and uh, it's weird because he's German, right? But he's like, and he's still like the token guy sometimes. But he's you know he spits shit hot Japanese and he's culturally totally absorbed. Um, and I don't think he's ever going to leave Japan. Um, like. Oh, you kind of froze. I don't know what the connection is. It your side? Oh, sorry. How does Estonia have poor connection? What's yeah, going on? I can tell you um, if you can hear me now. The problem I can is, hear you. so we're we're redoing the kids' um, bedroom. I'll show you. Okay. You, you see this? Yeah. Stuff here. So as a result, um, I I have put a uh, hard line uh, ethernet wiring into this apartment um, so that we could have beautiful coverage. But because this room is being redone, and this is where um, I'm doing my call with you, our podcast, um, I, uh, ha I don't have a, a wireless router in here. It's been unplugged because the, the face plates are off. And so that's part of the reason I apologize for that. Okay. Well, it is what it is. It's not that bad. Yeah. I feel like even when you get cut off, it kind of catches up, and I hope people can understand. It's only been a few times. But anyways, dude, I, I'm really – this has been really cool to learn more about Estonia because it's one of these places where I asked an Estonian about Estonia, and because they're from Estonia, it's hard for them to give me something that I could contextualize, you know. But since you're a foreigner in Estonia, it's, it's a lot more digestible. I think. 
Like, what do you do yeah. for fun? Like on a weekend? Like, okay, if I'm a, I'm a mid thirties guy, I'm gonna visit Estonia. What do you tell me to do if I have like a week? Um, you know, like like anywhere. Um, there's there's a, a a singer that I really like. He's one of my favorite artists. Uh, his name's uh, Sturgill Simpson. And he has a line in one of his songs. It's, he said, I've, I've seen every country in the world from the inside of a bar. So I would say that you could do that in Estonia and you could spend a week here and just be on a bender and you will have a blast. It would be a real shame, though, be a real shame, because the country, uh, the, the greatest thing that it, it offers to, to someone visiting who is just looking to uh, enjoy themselves and refresh and is nature. Uh, like I said, over half the country, or now I would say about half the country, and it's the statistics you have to take with a grain of salt, but a large portion of the country, almost half of it is covered in forest. You have a coastline um, all the way around the country uh, that uh, is, is dotted on the edges with, uh, with, these islands that are pretty incredible. Um, so hiking, uh, boating, um, all of that, uh, taking ferries to the different islands, um, it's, it's all the best part of Estonia, uh, the, the nature. Um, and then, now are I you, mean- Are you limited by time of year though? Like with that sort of stuff, like it gets pretty cold, right? Well, funny enough, uh, just out of the peculiarity of where the how the jet stream works and how um, uh, the location uh, with regards to the Baltic Sea and everything is it doesn't get frigidly cold here. I mean, it literally does get frigidly cold. You know, minus twenty is not unusual in the dead of winter, but that's about as cold as it gets. At least for now, things are changing right Re really quite quickly. Um, but that's about as cold as it gets. So I'm from Chicago, uh, born and raised there. So we had colder winters in Chicago. Um, so during the winter, I mean, even if it's minus 15, I would still tolerate that. Um, since I've been living here, I've been a runner. At the moment, I have a knee injury, so I can't, but, and it's killing me. Um, but even in, you know, minus degree temperature, it's not going to get to like minus 25 and minus 30. And if it does, it's super rare. Uh, it's still tolerable. You can still go out. And I, I, I just this winter would take, took my two boys on sleds, you know, through the, uh, the trails and they have trails all over um, the country, like these, these um, prepared trails through the forests. And, and that's just a fantastic thing. And it's so the, they have it's like the a greatest forest management system. That's pretty active here. Yeah, it's called the RMK, um, and um, I don't remember what the K is. It's uh, like protection, forest management and protection. Um, but yeah, they, they have this trail system all over, and it's pretty well documented and like camping sites and whatnot. Um, so yeah, I would say to a young man coming here, I would say bring your camping equipment. Um, if you like kite sailing, bring that stuff or get ready to rent it because that's the best part. And then, and then sauna, you know, sauna somewhere, um, on you know, near the water or in a forest, um, with some beers. That's, that's the best part of Estonia. And that's the gift that, um, 
that uh, I've received from okay, Estonia yeah, as a country. Dude, I can totally see why you're quite settled there. I mean, obviously you have your wife is from there, but still, it sounds like a pretty comfortable place to be. You know the the biggest change um, that we wanted and that we got coming here was getting out of an urban environment, like a, a big urban environment, which we've been in for so long. Me, I was in Beijing for like almost eight years, and then Tokyo, and you know, having grown up in Chicago, you know, in the city, and uh, just wanted something different, especially now that we were starting our own family. So, uh, yeah, I so see you're pulling up the pollution things. Like, look, look, man. Yeah, that, that's I mean, enough. we didn't Be- want that. Beijing is kind of a special case with terrible pollution. I mean, I was in Shanghai. It was terrible there. I mean, compared to Austin. But still, Beijing compared to Shanghai was bad. Like, Shanghai is already terrible. Like, 150 AQI, whatever the hell it's called. Like, we wouldn't take our kid outside to the park, you know, if it was too high. If it was over 200 or something. Beijing is just disgusting. Like, I remember being there years back and just... It was like over the chart, like they, they couldn't even like calculate how how high the AQI was because it was so but high. Nathan, I, 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 I want to say in the same breath, like it, it kind of pains me a little bit to call Beijing disgusting. It is. It's that soup is fucked me up. You know, that air was terrible. And, uh, you know, not to get into uh, anything political, but just that part that you can't drink from the tap uh, unless you want to get kidney stones. Uh, and, and and you can't be outside sometimes unless you know you want to get lung cancer. You do it for, for long enough. Like that stuff is terrible. But I also have, and I believe you have some of this too. Really great memories. Uh, oh and yeah. Things that I wouldn't give back. Dude, and, and there's all this kind of st- stupid fake beef between like expats in Shanghai and Beijing. You know, it's kind of just good fun, but. There is some stuff about Beijing that, at least back when you lived there and back when I spent time there, that was kind of had more of an edge to it. It was a little more exciting, uh, like yeah. on the cultural side and kind of on the countercultural side, at least. You know, music scene, art scene, yeah. a little more exciting in Beijing. Actually, a lot more exciting in Beijing than Shanghai. I don't know about now, but at least in your it's days gone. in Beijing, it's definitely. Gone. It's over. Yeah, that's that, that's that's the other thing to keep in mind. That's the uh, the subtext of this is that that is gone. Uh, that that it was kind of a utopic. I mean, the way like there was work for everybody. Um, the the people that were in Beijing, um, not just the Beijingers. If, if you were, you know, I have Beijing friends that are just fantastic. I still talk to them, um, but even like the, the foreigners that were in Beijing were also consistently pretty cool, interesting people, um, you know, that I spoke in contact with more than people from college, for example. Um, but that doesn't exist anymore. That world situation is gone and you, things have you, changed. And you cut and out China for a bit. Has you cut changed, out for a bit. Uh, but even way. And so, yeah, I'm just saying China has changed in a way in the way that it, it communicates with the rest of the world. Whereas before it was like, everyone is happy. This is great. And now they're like, don't fuck with us. 
Yeah, and then like when you were there, it's it kind of when this Twitter, China Twitter emerged, where all the journalists, you know, most of them based up there in Beijing, and they're all on Twitter, and it almost the scene was kind of created there, but a lot of those people aren't in Beijing anymore because they got kicked out, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's uh, to me, it's night and day, and even you know, having gone back. Years ago, when you know, when I started to see this change with digital currencies and uh, not digital currencies exactly, but the processing of money, which is the precursor to a, a change over into uh, all digital currencies, like using QR codes and WeChat Pay and Alipay. Like when I when I went back to to be there um, just as a visit, like I had already seen, like this is not the place that I lived in. It's just so different, and it's even more so now. I'd say.、Um, Yeah. Hey, so we're two hours in. Do you got some place to be, or is、yep. it, you need to wrap up? Time to go to work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm off. You're off. You got work. You got work to get to. Absolutely. Yeah.、Um, but I think we should do it again.、Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm looking forward to you doing Scott Silverman.、Uh, maybe next. I don't know. Maybe next time I'm gonna talk to him. I think、uh, we got some good teaser material for Scott to come on because he's he's a legend, you know. And dude, I mean, I'm living in Austin. I've seen him in person only once since I've moved here because just because of COVID and all that shit. But、uh, we've been doing a lot of work remotely together, so I'm definitely like talking to him on a weekly basis. Right on. Yeah. So.、Um... Yeah, tell me when that happens, and and、uh, I think it would be、uh, really interesting to see what he thought of of this podcast. Is this even a podcast? Yeah, it's I mean, a podcast. I, I mean, video, it's video. Cast? I'm gonna put it on YouTube, and、uh, but I think it makes more sense to listen to this as like an audio thing. Like, just I mean, that's what I would do if I were a listener, just because you can multitask. If you have YouTube, you know, you gotta have the video open. It's cool if you're on like your TV. You get your little Roku TV going on. You search expats on air. You click the Nestor Santana episode. You press play. You do a little busy work. You have it on in the background. You see that works. But、um, yeah. Anyways, yeah, there's super cheesy promotion there. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> you got to refine that one. I think you can do yeah, that. No, it's just just bullshitting, man.、Um, you know, I've been drinking these.、Uh, These Topo Chico hard seltzers. It's like、uh, the hot thing in、oh, Texas、nice. now. Yeah, they're pretty cheap. What's the percentage? Four point seven, and they're、oh, that's e- that's, that's easy drinking. Great job. Yeah, they're like a hundred calories, hundred calories a pop. I don't know. I like Topo、um, Chico, and if you don't know Topo Chico, they make like carbonated water, sparkling water, but it's Mexican. Yeah. You know it.、Um, you're like you're like、uh, practically Mexican, right? But not.、Uh, yeah. So it's funny that you say that. There was there was a guy just as I was leaving Beijing who started、uh, describing me to other people as a Mexican American technologist. <laughs> I shit you not. Which is hilarious because I'm not Mexican.、Um, yeah. <laughs>、uh, but also,、uh, I had never been described as a technologist. Um, although I think that's kind of cool. See, this、uh, sounds like how I would have described you years ago, like what I was saying earlier. Like, oh, he's this mysterious like tech guy, and he's Mexican. 
<laughs> but no, I never. Um, I actually got, never described I've got no you as problem Mexican. being associated with, with Mexicans. I think uh, contrary no, to some people's understanding, that they're they're great, great people. Um, Mexico's cool, and uh, got a lot of time for them. I like Mexico, so, but I like Texas too. And there's there's kind of a, a, a rocky history there with the with the two. But they're they're both great in my opinion, and they're kind of like almost the same at the same time. Well, they, yeah, that's uh, that's that's one of those historical um, relationships that's like, well, this used to be Spain, this used to be Mexico, then it was yeah. America, and that's how it's always going to be. But that happened, and uh, so let's not ignore that. Uh, yeah, there's there things there that are interesting. Every every so often, I see some Facebook posts where it's like, did you know that like America stole Texas from poor little Mexico? And, you know, yeah, we're like, never going back. Sorry. But it's was it really poor little Mexico? It's like one colonial power versus another colonial power fighting over a piece of land that, you know, a bunch of like white people were invited into at one point. It's just so complicated and strange, you yeah. know. And then there were natives were involved as well. Yeah, right? dude. And they got yeah, they, they got the short end of the stick, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a complicated story, too, you know. Um, you know, we're we're talking about uh, inching into race a bit, and for I have indigenous uh, ancestry, yeah. not a lot, but but enough that uh, I'll, I'll talk about it, and uh, and that's the same thing everywhere. Every, indigenous people all over get the short end of the stick. Even when the U.S. government, or let's say the French government, um, uh, you know, worked in conjunction with uh, indigenous peoples. Um, for better or for worse, like they still didn't get a great deal out of it. Um, and that, that's, that's the historical theme, I think. Yeah. There was, yeah. there was, uh, often a, a, by the way, which was often like, you know, that contract we had, by the way, we're just going to throw that out now and maybe, maybe just change it, but you don't have a say, you know, there's just all that like wounded knee shit, all the, the stuff with the Sioux Indians, like up there in, in the North and, it's crazy stuff, man. But yeah, we don't need to get into all that. It's a uh... okay. I don't know. I'm too fucked up to talk about Native American history, man. Especially with a, uh, <laughs> especially with like an Ecuadorian guy, you know, who's part Native. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get into it some other time. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, dude. Is on the show, Nathan. One thing before we go. I mean, obviously, we talked about your company. But is there anything we want to plug, or just anything cool? You'd want to put out there in the airspace just to promote before you get off the air. Oh, unfortunately, everything's very formative right now. Um, there is uh, my my wife, uh, who is awesome and very interesting, and is toiling away uh, doing her like day job, working for uh, a Facebook advertising company, mm. uh, which actually. That'd be something we can talk about next time is uh, uh, Tim Cook versus uh, Zuckerberg. Um, but uh, that, that's that's not her, her end goal or, or passion. What she's trying to do at the moment is to make cosmetics that are made from food refuse um, or, uh, or refuse that, that is organic. Yeah. Um, and uh, and doing it in a way that the, the packaging is going to be 
um, very much in line with that mentality and idea that we, we don't want to wait, we want to reuse, and also make it so that disposability is also taken into account. Now, that sounds like uh, a little bit trite, uh, I have to admit, but the thing is, the reason that it's been talked about so much is because there there aren't very good solutions, and a lot of brands, there really aren't. Um, you know, if we talk about just like beauty products, for example, um, they don't have a good solution for it. Uh, there's and it's very difficult to switch over, especially when you're making tens of millions of packages or hundreds of millions uh, of products um, individualized. You know, how do you switch over your legacy manufacturing systems? To something that is that is going to be more sustainable, even yeah. if it's a, a compliance uh, requirement. Like, how do you do that in a way that truly is? So she's working on something like that, and and I think that's that's something I'd love to plug in a future uh, episode and talk about. But it's still yeah, an dude. informative uh, time. Yeah. And, and for uh, ScanTrust, the- we've got uh, we've got a lot of changes happening. I hope before the end of the year. Um, but uh, in the meantime, if you're interested in seeing how QR codes can turn physical products into a, a, a connection point with consumers, then check out the website. That's it for now. Scantrust.com. Not .org, not .net, not .info. No. .com, the real deal. Uh, Nestor, thanks for coming on and maybe... If it's not too close from now, like the next flare up between Zuckerberg and Tim Cook, maybe we reconnect and then we can talk about that kind of stuff then. Right on. See you next time. See you later. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening.